Well, let's uh, let's do this, right? So I want to clarify the way I ended the last podcast, so that nobody will have any excuse whatsoever about where my mindset is. So let me let me be clear. I am not an advocate of violence when it comes to settling political disputes, right? Uh, If I was in a position as a leader of a nation state, I would do everything in my power during my tenure to make sure that we would not be embroiled in any kind of armed conflict, right? I believe that if you are a law enforcement officer, that using a violent level of force to address uh, an issue, an incident, should be the last level that you should resort to, not the automatic go-to. But I did want to point out something. So people would kind of check themselves, right? Because I think what has happened in history is that people who have pushed racist agendas uh, have kind of felt like they could do it unchecked, right? That, That since they had the power and the institutions uh, on their side, that they could enact certain things. And then, you know, fortunately, we've only had one actual war amongst ourselves. Uh, and it lasted five years, by the way, where race was the predominant issue. And we didn't seem to learn from that, right? And so the next wave, because there was a major reconstruction of the country after that. And then some people will say that the second reconstruction happened after the courts, the Supreme Court primarily, the federal courts stepped in and ended a lot of the segregationist laws that were in practice. So we've avoided a second confrontation, right? But we've had skirmishes, right? The latest, most notable one was in Portland, uh, where the conservative journalist was hit with this concoction of concrete and something. Um, But it was the anti-fascist Antifa and the alt-right folks battling in Portland. And then you have, of course, Charlottesville. Um, You had situation in Memphis where convicted criminal was killed and the people protested for two days. You've had full-blown riots in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, You know, just all throughout, right? Of course, the last LA riots based on police brutality, all these all these different skirmishes that have happened throughout the history of the country since World War II, I mean, uh, the Civil War. 
um, a lot of this, a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about and the bloody summer uh, took place after World War One, right? So you've had skirmishes, right? But then you had this movement that was led by Martin Luther King Jr., many others who, um, you know, it was the formation of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, it solidified the NAACP, National Urban League, um, many and many other groups to create this strategy to protest nonviolently, right? And was able to attain a lot of the success, which has led to a lot of the opportunities for African-Americans and other people, by the way, who have benefited from those legal decisions to advance and move forward in the United States of America, both in a societal sense and even in a capitalistic sense to a certain degree, right? There are still some struggles and strategies that need to be looked at and um, to deal with it from, from the capitalist perspective. But there, there are opportunities, a lot more than um, in a segregated economy, right? Um, in a segregated economy, black folks did pretty well catering to their own, right? But now we're in a global economy and there are some opportunities for African-Americans to achieve that. Um, but there's some hindrances. I say all that to say that though the way I, I wanted that to end was so people that understood that they're so fired up and think that, oh, well, you know, Donald Trump is our guy and, and we can say and do what we want to do. We're tired of these left liberal people of color telling us we're wrong and we're marginalized and all this stuff. And we're taking to the streets and we're going to, we're going to fight back by any means necessary. And all I was pointing out was you're going to meet a resistance. If that's the route you're going to go, you're going to get people who are of a generation. Whereas like, Dr. King was a nice historical figure. I get off work for the holiday named after him. But if you come at me with tiki torches, I'm not going to get nonviolent on you. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. I'm coming. I'm going I'm to respond back. And that's what we're running. You see that now. And there's no national voice to say, don't do that. And I don't think there will be one. I think people are that fed up. And either they're going to personally subscribe to a nonviolent, go through the process approach. And then there's going to be some folks that's going to take it to the street. Right? And so in America, we celebrate both of those, right? Because when we sit here and talk about Stonewall in New York, an anniversary of, of that, incident, right? That was a riot. 
And the scene of that riot is now a historical place in America, right? Where you actually have park rangers are responsible for it. And the gay rights movement in America was kind of trying to take a similar tack to what the civil rights movement was doing. But circumstances and leadership dictated otherwise. And they literally fought back. Now, they engaged in the civil process. They engaged in the political process and all that stuff. But they fought back. They came out with magazines calling people out who were trying to enact policies that hurt the LGBT community, but they actually were members of the community themselves, right? So they were called out. They even had a magazine set up for it. So we have seen in this country over the last 50 years two ways to achieve Uh, political respect. The other advantage that the LGBT community has is their wealth, right? When you look at a race of people, the African-American community has an incredible amount of buying power. When you break it down by any other societal classification, right? The LGBT community is a very, very powerful economic force, buying force, wealth attained, right? And so anytime there's been some achievements in American history, I want people to be clear so it won't be too altruistic or too mythological, right? Capitalism plays a part in resolving differences. When the business community says, let's look at that LGBT community again. Let's look at the black community again. How much buying power do these people have? Yeah, maybe we need to tone some of that rhetoric down. Right? So I'm just, I'm throwing it out there, but I, I, want, I felt like I needed to spend the opening minutes here to make sure people don't take what I say out of context as far as there's no Martin Luther King to filter the black community anymore. I just, but I, I want people to, on the other side to understand that in the past, either you had nobody to challenge you or you had a strong leader to moderate how the challenge was going to happen, right? Now, you have people that will, you have a generation of people that will challenge you and there's no moderator. That's all I'm saying. You can take that however you want to. Uh, you can Discuss that amongst your friends. Um, I think that was a public service announcement for you that if you want to push a racist agenda in the United States of America, you're going to get some pushback, and you may not like how that pushback comes. I'm not encouraging violence, but as Chris Rock says, I understand.
because I'm not that person. Nobody is that person that can tell black folks, chill. There's a different way to do it. So I'm saying. And if we keep putting people in positions to stoke those kind of flames, if we continue to give those people a political voice in American politics, because I, you know, I'm down with free speech and all that, but I think there, there, there has to be restrictions, right? I mean, if you can't yell fire in a crowded theater and there's, excuse me, no fire to be there, to be present, there's no imminent danger, right? Then I don't think that people should be allowed to speak in a way that is going to create chaos, division, anarchy, whatever, right? And there's a fine line with that. I mean, I work for the ACLU, so I know. It's a fine line uh, in, in, in restricting that, right? But, you know, we've, we've seen actions lead to destructive actions. We've seen words lead to destructive actions in this country. And I'm, I'm just really, really not comfortable with the direction that we're going even more so than I have been in the past, right? I've seen people, I've heard people. I mean, I've gone back and listened to tapes of what people used to say, unfiltered, unfeathered, right? But they had a limited audience and, you know, not everybody that opposed them heard exactly what they said until maybe later on in life and in archives and all that. But you understand, well, this is what my parents was fighting against, right? But now it's like it's on a constant 24-hour basis. You hear this stuff. You can't hardly avoid it, you know, not unless you just totally lock into the outdoor channel or any of the sports channels or home and garden television, home shot. If you just lock into one of those channels and you just avoid news altogether, right? If you don't have a smartphone, maybe, maybe you can avoid all this rhetoric that's going on, but it's going to be hard. We just live in a different time. So, Anyway, I just wanted to get that get that out there and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Okay. So now that um, I did that clarification, um, you know, and I, I just I just thought about it because I I want I want to be a a voice right, but I I just want to be a powerful voice, and and sometimes speaking truth to power, you have to make sure people understand what you're really trying to say, right? 
you know, and people are going to misconstrue it because people do that deliberately, strategically, right? But, you know, as long as I continue to put it out there, right? Because if Donald Trump can stand in front of a camera and basically incite people to yell, send it back, send it back, and then the next day in front of another camera say, yeah, I didn't do that. <sighs> you know, I think uh, I'm entitled to try to fend off anything anybody says uh, and put my own interpretation on what I wanted to say, right? And, um, and I and I and I really am trying to be genuine about it, as opposed to some other people. Anyway, so the last thing I guess I wanted to talk about in this podcast is the thing that's on my mind today. Briefly, is about the debate the second democratic debate. We've seen how the first one went. Uh, we've actually seen a candidate drop out from the democratic side out of quarter of a hundred. And so somebody else moved into that slot, right? To make it to the top 20 which is really a top five and you got 15 people who are like basically just stroking egos right now. And if, if you're, here's, here's where I am at this point. If you are a member of the House of Representatives and you're running for President of the United States now and, and you're not in the top five, then after this debate, if you don't get that push to get into the top five, if you're not trending, it's time for you to start your reelection campaign. It's time for you to be in a position to start getting your uh, house seat in order um, to have a shot at being reelected because the longer you stay out of that race and keep pursuing this presidential race, the stronger your opposition will be both in a democratic primary and in the general, and regardless of how the district is drawn up, people are going to make a perception that maybe you don't want to be in that seat anymore. And they'll vote accordingly. So, you know, it was in your political purview within your right to pursue running for president of the United States. I think that's a noble thing. And I think the fact that you were able to have the temerity and the gumption to make that happen, to make an attempt to be on a national stage twice. I think that's great. Um, but if the reality is right now, I think the first people that need to step out of the race are the House of Representatives. Uh, the members of the House of Representatives that are running for, I think it's time for them to fish or cut bait at this point, right? As far as people like Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang who have decent amount of capital and 
no elected obligations to worry about. Ride the wave as long as y'all want to. As the field narrows down, you'll have more opportunities to be heard and um, and people will gravitate. I think some people kind of got upset because Alyssa Milano wanted to support Williamson or at least attend the fundraiser for her. And I'm like, Ms. Williamson is not a bad person. She's, you know, I, I, I think her biggest, the biggest criticism that we have with her is that she's not a fan of vaccinations. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is not a fan of vaccinations, right? And so, you know, she's not the only high-profile person that has that viewpoint. Now, I, I personally disagree with that. Uh, when I was with the ACLU, we stayed out of it, although there were people within the organization that were kind of debating the merits on both sides. And we were talking about, and it was based on individual liberty as opposed to general welfare, right? And the fact that we as an organization kind of stay out of it kind of would lead people to believe that the general welfare is more important. But nonetheless, you know, I think it's a, it's a discussion and she's using her platform as a candidate for president of the United States to throw it out there. And if people don't want to vote for it because of that, Okay, people want to vote for her because of that. Okay. But she's throwing it out there, and I don't think people have had a track record of being progressive and trying to do the right thing, using their celebrity status should be vilified for that. And I think, from what I understand, Ms. Milano was trying to make the rounds for everybody until we actually come up with a nominee. Because her goal is whoever survives the primary, she's with them, and we got to get Donald Trump out. So, but now, then, of course, after, and I don't know, and I, and I, and I, I, I'm assuming that all of the people that are running for the United States, that is, that are U.S. senators that are running for president, I'm assuming that their seats are not up for re-election this year, uh, in 2020. So. You know, I don't know if that applies to them, and I have to really go back and look at the field again and see who is up because, um, but I don't think any of them are. Nonetheless, you know, if there is one that's out there, they might need to seriously start considering that option too after the second debate if they're not in that top five. Because the the most important thing that I think Democrats need to remember is that if you if you want to have the autonomy to do what needs to be done in your mind, right? Now I there's no doubt about based on my political history where I align, but just just taking my personal political belief out and just looking at it strategically, right? I think the Democrats want to have, at least for the first two years, a trifecta. I think they've shown that when they've had the trifecta, 
Democratic president of the White House, Democratic controlled House, Democratic controlled Senate. And they are very productive. And they're going to throw some public policy out there. And even, even as dominant as it is, issues that really need debate will be debated, such as, for example, health care. The Affordable Care Act wasn't passed until the majority had flipped, right, on the Senate side. And so that opened the door for a lot of stuff to be taken out of the original package, and we all know how that went. But strategically, the Democrats, in order to be an antiseptic, right, because Donald Trump came in and wanted to eliminate anything that the record said Obama had something to do with, right? All his executive orders, any legislative policy that he did in eight years, Donald Trump's whole mission was to be Napoleonic, right? And that's the legend of Napoleon is that he went to different places and tried to alter the culture of those places, right? You know, most notoriously is like Egypt. The legend is that he had the Sphinx damaged and all that stuff. And I, I don't know if that's true, but that's always been the myth. You know, that Napoleon went into different countries he conquered and tried to re-image the country into French culture as opposed to interweaving French culture with the nations and the countries that he's occupied. Anyway, um, but Donald Trump has definitely been on a mission to do that since he's been in office. Just take away anything. So, <clears throat> to be honest, first couple of years, a Democratic president is going to have to reverse some of the stuff that Donald Trump has done. Um, you know, but I, I think whoever that president's going to be, I think that they're going to be a lot more pragmatic about it than just saying, oh, well, Trump did it, so we're going to take it out. You know, I think there may be some things that they like. But, you know, it's just Donald Trump didn't have that. It's like anything that had Obama's name to it, it was like he was trying to wipe him out from the books, right? You know, like Pharaoh was telling Moses he's exiled him, right? But, you know, so I think that's there's going to have to be some of that. And then and then the, a lot of the stuff that has been in a holding pattern on the Senate side, some 200 pieces of legislation will have to get passed. And some federal benches are going to have to be appointed really, really fast. Um, you know, and, uh, thanks to the Republicans, they pretty much blew up the filibuster rule. So when the Democrats take over both houses, there won't be any stopping the, uh, Democratic majority Senate from putting in the president's appointees, right? So, um... Yeah, we're it's it's I think that's the overall strategy. So you want all these house members back in. 
right? Because they're leaders. They have a following to not only represent their district, but to actually get support to be president of the United States. They're going to be leaders in the House that you need, right? And, and then you're, you're going to need those senators, right, to help the new group come in and, and start doing the work, being the leaders in the Senate. And, and then to be an assistant to the president. Now, some of these folks that are running may end up in some cabinet positions, so you're still going to have some special elections or whatever. It's inevitable, right? But if the majority of the people that are running for president now that are currently members of Congress go back to Congress, if not all of them, then I think the... Uh, it'll be easier for the new Democrat president to be able to get an agenda and stabilize the nation and uh, figure out a way to start healing the nation despite this element that's out there that is clearly racist and doesn't want to um, be fully engaged with people of color or different beliefs. Um, and so, you know, the Archie Bunker crowd can be the Archie Bunker crowd, right? But they won't be in the majority of the nation, and there'll be a government in place that will address the majority and not the minority in, in that sense, right? Very vocal minority, but a minority, because the majority of American people ain't really feeling this, you know? A lot of them are young, a lot of them are not even able to vote, but in the next 10, 20 years, they will be. And uh, they'll be parents. And we'll be teaching um, a new generation, several new generations of people what America really should be about. Right? So anyway, um, that's, just, that's just a thought I had. Um, until next time.